Well, I wanted to look at this passage from Second uh, Chronicles chapter 15, a story that uh, isn't usually tackled on, on the Sunday worship services according to the lectionary. It's a reading that appears on the Monday of this week uh, leading up to Pentecost. Um, but it's a good story and there's lots in the Old Testament that we don't often tackle uh, on, a, on a normal Sunday, but this, this is uh, one story that I thought was worth looking at and uh, merging it with this, the prayer of Jesus. So a little bit of history to begin with. Well, King Asa of Judah was the great-great-grandson of King David of Israel. History tells us that Asa was a good king and there was peace for most of the 41 years that he reigned in Jerusalem. However, like every other king before him, he wasn't perfect. Even the book of Chronicles, which is sympathetic to the kings of Judah and Israel, tells us that Asa didn't get rid of all of the pagan shrines in the land. He left some of them untouched. He tolerated practices that weren't good. And when things were going well for him, he sought help from a powerful neighboring king instead of seeking God's help. He also probably died from a terrible foot disease, which again, the Bible tells us he refused to seek God's help with, rather trusting only in medical help. And remember that the Bible tells us that it was never God's idea that God's people should be ruled by an earthly king. That was never God's idea. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Hosea chapter 13, read and, and verse 11. Read them and you'll get evidence to suggest that or to make that clear. Because when the people of the then United Nation, nation of Israel saw that the nations around them had were led by powerful kings, they decided that that's what they needed too. God tells the prophet and the judge Samuel that it's not Samuel that they're rejecting, rather it's their God they are rejecting, since they no longer want the God who delivered them from slavery to be their king. When Judah decides, or Israel decided that they wanted a king, they were rejecting God as their king. In Second Chronicles, we have this story about King Asa introducing religious reforms in Judah, in the southern part of what was now the divided nation of Israel. And of course, division is another sign of disunity and the, the breaking up of God's people because of the way kings were governing. The story starts in 2 Chronicles 15 with a hopeful word from God when the Spirit of God comes upon the prophet Azariah. So it's all good so far. At least there's prophets in the land who are hearing from God. And he says this, the prophet says, listen to me, Asa, he shouted, listen, all you people of Judah and Benjamin. That's the southern part of, the, of, of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. 
For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach them, and without the law to instruct them. But whenever they were in trouble and turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him out, they found him. During those dark times, it was not safe to travel. Problems troubled the people of every land. Nation fought against nation, and city against city. For God was troubling them with every kind of problem. But as for you, be strong and courageous, for your work will be rewarded. So, so far so good. The word from God through the prophet is a word of encouragement. So when Asa gets the message, he starts to make changes for the better. He gets rid of all the detestable idols and he repairs the altar of the Lord. In other words, until this word from God came to Asa and the people of Judah and Benjamin, detestable idols had been tolerated, maybe even encouraged. And the place of worship of God was in disrepair. No wonder they were having problems. Now, to me, these religious reforms sound good, essential even. People have to get rid of harmful practices and find spaces in their lives to worship God. People have to get rid of harmful practices and find spaces in their lives to worship God, to give God his worth. Because people are made for worship. And life works best when we are worshipping God. Isn't that true? When we are in a healthy relationship with God, which acknowledges what God is worth. The God who is revealed to us in all of creation, throughout history, and in the person of Jesus, the Anointed One. Now, what form that worship takes will vary from place to place and from person to person. In King Asa's time, they understood that worship meant sacrifice. And so we read that they respond to this word of God by sacrificing 700 cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats from the plunder that they had taken from the neighbors. Now that doesn't sound like it was all that costly to them, does it? Since it was their neighbor's nation, the neighboring nation's cattle, that they were sacrificing rather than their own, which presumably they had. Sounds to me like they were not familiar with the words of King David at the end of 2 Samuel, which says David refused to offer anything to God that had cost him nothing. Even sacrificial worship has to cost. And then we read that Asa had the people enter a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and soul. That sounds good, doesn't it? Let's make a covenant to seek the Lord with all our heart and soul. That's good. But then the next verse tells us that anyone who refused to seek the Lord would be put to death, whether they're young or old, man or woman. Now, we might read this and understand that this is what God is asking the people to do. Especially when we read on and find that all the people were happy with this covenant and they entered into it with all their heart, earnestly seeking God and finding him. And the Lord gave them rest from their enemies on every side. So it's all good, isn't it? Well, that being the outcome, 
rest from their enemies on every side, peace. We might read the, the steps leading up to that as being what God was asking. This is why so many people find the Old Testament difficult, and they only see a God who condones or even encourages violence. But there's often a big difference between what God says and what, God, what people hear or understand. There's often a big difference between what God says and what God, people hear or understand. The sacrifices and the death threats didn't come from God. They came from people's misunderstanding of what God was saying. Or if not misunderstanding, they were at least adding something to what God had asked of them. God doesn't ask people to deal harshly with others. God's way is love. The way of Christ is grace and acceptance, not judgment and hatred. Jesus is our supreme model of unconditional love. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And never once did he issue a death threat, did he? Never once did he sacrifice a lamb or a goat or even a pigeon. Instead, he offers himself as the way to greatness and oneness with God. And so Jesus' prayer for us in John 17 is a prayer that oneness becomes a reality for us. It shows us that God's desire for the church, and indeed for all people, is a desire for unity. That they will be one, is Jesus' prayer. And that oneness doesn't just mean that we agree to agree with each other. In fact, it's not that at all. Unity doesn't mean we'll always agree with each other. We know that from 2,000 years of church history. If Christians always agreed on their interpretation of God and what God says, then there would be no more than one denomination. But history has shown us that the church has not always agreed on the interpretation of the Bible. Even today, there might be as many different interpretations of a Bible verse as there are people reading it or hearing it. But that doesn't mean that we can't be one. Until we are each made perfect, we will still interpret the Bible differently from each other. What we need is that the Spirit of God is our guide in all truth. What matters always is to surrender our heart and mind to the Spirit's counsel. What matters is oneness with God. We need the helper whom Jesus promised his disciples and who has been poured out on the church at Pentecost. Come, Holy Spirit, even now we need you to be our guide, to keep us from misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and disunity. Oneness is more than agreeing with each other. It's the need to be one with Christ, one in Christ, as Jesus was one with the Father, as Jesus was one in the Father, and the Father was in Jesus. It's that mutual indwelling that matters. Me in God and God in me, us in God and God in us together. When Jesus prays, prays I have given them the glory that you gave me, 
He's saying that this oneness is given through Jesus to those who seek to follow him. In the Greek, to be given the glory here is in the perfect tense. That suggests that this is an ongoing activity of Jesus to continually pour out the glory, the glory that tends towards oneness with God and with all living beings. Jesus is continually giving out the glory. It's pouring out into believing hearts. It's a constant flow of grace and blessing. And we're invited to get into that flow and let the blessing of oneness flow through us. We can say to ourselves and to one another, I am one with Christ. I am one with God. I am one with you, my brother, my sister. We are all one in Christ. And this flow is a continual revealing of Christ to us, meaning that we grow in our understanding of who God is and how God works. Without that necessary growth, we will misinterpret, we will misunderstand, and we will be disunited. But in this prayer of Jesus, the promises to keep on, he promises to keep on revealing to us so that God's love would be fully in us, that we may be perfected into one. Let's take a moment to pray together. Loving Father, thank you that you have made us one with you and with each other. As we seek to witness the love of Christ, bring us to a more perfect state of unity in heart and mind so that we might see your kingdom come in ever greater glory in Kirk Newton, East Calder, and in all of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.